Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you back to Loose Rounds, the AR-15 podcast's new show, where we're going to just sit here and go over things that have been happening uh, that really have been affecting all of us uh, who are fans, hobbyists, enthusiasts, or just flat out dependent on uh, the firearms industry for their livelihood. So um, we have with us tonight... Uh, John Richardson and John, uh, you run a blog that I understand has been recognized, uh, uh, just recently here, uh, nationally. So why don't you tell us about your blog? My blog is called No Lawyers, No Offense, Only Guns and Money. It's a takeoff on the Warren Zevon songs and Lawyers, Guns and Money. And I won the Ray Carter Blogger of the Year Award from the Second Amendment Foundation. I'm also the co-host of the podcast, Polite Society Podcast. Well, John, we've had you on the show before, and we're excited to have you back. In fact, you invited me to come on Polite Society Podcast. I'm not sure exactly how well that went over, but, you know, I appreciate the invite. (laughs) I thought it was good. And we also have with us uh, Mike, uh, our regular uh, contributing um, public relations and – PR news release writer. Uh, I know JD loves all the stuff that you put together for us. I think you're just a hack, but that's all right. <laughs> it's true. Just don't tell him. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we've had some pretty staggering events going on in the, uh, in the news. And of course, um, when these things happen, we have a whole lot of, um, vitriol spewing back and forth. So we decided that we would get on tonight's Loose Rounds episode and really kind of talk about some of the common arguments and positions that we hear all the time. Um, you know, before that, I want to just kind of do a little bit of housekeeping, but we're going to keep it to a minimum so we can get as much as possible in tonight since, you know, this is probably at least a day or two of content. Um, let's see. So as far as, uh, supporting our platform, we'd like to know, we'd like you to know that you can, uh, go and support us by becoming a Patreon supporter. Uh, 100% of your donations are invested in our show and, uh, never in our pockets. You know, all of us uh, have day jobs so that we, you know, can pay our mortgage. And this isn't really where we go to, um, provide resources for ourselves and our families. Uh, we come here so that we can just have fun, uh, so that we can be enthusiasts, so we can be better informed, so we can share. And, uh, so we want to assure you that, um, any contributions that you make to help us through a Patreon system are going to make our show better for you. Um, whether it's better technology, more access to the things that you like us to talk to you about, um, whatever the case may be. So if you would like to support us, go to our Patreon and help us there. Um, and I guess that's pretty much it. Um, you know, we can start, uh, I guess, with a, a little bit of what have you guys been up to this week. Um, John, why don't you tell us what you've been up to all this week? Well, I've been doing like you, earning a living and blogging like a madman. Because there's two or three, five, six, seven things coming out every day. Um, Politicians are proposing laws. Illinois General Assembly is passing laws. Uh, you name it, it's been going on. Well, I imagine that uh, it's nice to have a ready supply of material as opposed to having nothing or slim pickings and having to figure out how you're going to come up with something substantive. 
I think you're right. <laughs> it has made it easy. <laughs> well, Mike, what have you been up to? Uh, I've also been working. I, you know, I've been putting my eye on a couple of items given the current climate of the, uh, of the country. And, uh, I am not on social media. So I basically just have to yell at my friends via text message and, uh, try to convince them to spread the word and to stave off the silly from all of the perpetual 24 hours worth of nonsense that comes booming out of televisions and radios and whatnot. So that's been a full-time job too. You know, I've, I've been, I have been distracted with the noise that is, is percolating around in the, the ether. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've been keeping my composure, I think in large part, but I can't tell you how many times I have heard just utter drivel <laughs> coming forth from the lips of people that really should not be speaking and, and how, how absolutely removed some of these things are from the real world. And, and, you know, honestly, you know, John, you and I are nowhere close to the millennial generation. And, and Mike, you might be, but in our discussions, you are so removed in spirit from anything millennial that I, I wouldn't even dare to insult you by saying that by virtue of your birth, you're related at all. But I appreciate that. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> well, you might write it down because that might be the last nice thing I ever say to you. <laughs> it last. The... The millennials that I have been exposed to in my life, I thought were really a very silly generation. But what I've been hearing from people these last, I don't know, two weeks now is just utterly ridiculous. I mean, utterly ridiculous. I really fear for the direction our country is going to go when these people come of age. I can only hope that they're going to be the ones that are going to, I don't know, disabuse themselves of the notion that a college education is worthwhile and it'll be all of us working into our 80s and 90s with, you know, wonderful technology keeping us alive longer. That'll just make the world run. And then, you know, God help them all when we're all dead. Hopefully, <sighs> Tyler will come out with a better detergent pod. That'll, that'll just solve the issue. <laughs> I'm just saying, the one guy talking here. <laughs> what were you about to say, John? <laughs> well, the, you know, if we work into our 80s and then we finally retire, they're going to have to move out of our basements. Well, that is true. That is true. Because, you know, everybody wants to be an empty nester at some point in their life, you know, at least before they go into the retirement home. Well, I guess that part of the issue is now that scientists are saying adolescence runs up to age 25 or 26, nobody's forcing these kids to grow up, get a job. Get a mortgage. Participate in the real world. Participate in the real world. You know, uh, I, I had someone, I had someone, um, comment about how they were afraid of, of tomorrow. And, and it, it just struck me as his comment, um, not tomorrow, the future. And, and, um, I was recalling the fact that, you know, despite my, you know, angst about the millennials, there is a whole generation that came up you know, beside them who, you know, joined the military, who volunteered to step into the breach, who, you know, went overseas and did the, the very difficult things that were asked of them. And of that core, 
there are many other like-minded individuals. And so I think they're, they're coming up, you know, in parallel to the snowflake generation. And I think maybe by, you know, pure social Darwinism, they're going to be the ones that will run the future, uh, as opposed to the millennials, because honestly, I don't think those guys could boil water. Um, so maybe it's not such a bad thing. Maybe it's not going to be so awful. Um, so I guess we should go ahead and really kind of begin trying to, you know, take some bites out of this elephant here. Um, you know, we've had another national tragedy. Um, we all know what we're talking about. We're not going to really go into the details of it. Um, I think perhaps this is a little unusual in as much as the last time we had one of these, I think of this kind of, I don't know, social, there's something impactful about this tragedy that is really kind of different from what has happened since Columbine. I, I don't recall children in the past having stood up or uh, attempting to stand up in the limelight the way that they have today. And, you know, I think that part of it is, you know, in 1999, we were just on the precipice of, you know, the dot-com bubble collapsing. And I don't think really in terms of technology and social media and those things, they were really formed in a meaningful way. And at the same time, um, you know, reality TV is a, construct of a generation didn't exist in 1999 to my knowledge. I mean, and, and for whatever reason, this seems to be the moment where uh, all of these kids are stepping forward, um, to talk about things that they think, um, we need to do to satisfy them in the aftermath of what happened. And, and, I don't know about you guys, but do you get that sense that there is something different in that regard about this than perhaps in the last 10 years? I think you're right. If you think back to Sandy Hook or Newtown, they were elementary school students. They were not able to articulate the way these high school students were. And then back to, was it 90, mid 90s, whenever Columbine happened. I think that was 99. 99. When Columbine happened, number one, we still have the assault weapons ban. Number two, you're absolutely correct. Social media was not so pervasive in our lives. We might have had email. We might have had old-fashioned bulletin board systems, but it was different. It wasn't so pervasive, invasive, actually, in our lives. And I think the what I call the gun control industry – I'm not saying that they were waiting for a disaster to happen like this, but they were prepared. And they have, for lack of a better word, they have weaponized these teens, the David Hogg, the Emma Gonzalez. They picked them up. They've publicized them. They've trotted them from one news station to, from Meet the Press to you know, this week with George Stephanopoulos to Good Morning America to whatever. They have organize them. I mean, I just read the other day that you had Planned Parenthood, Everytown, MoveOn.org, maybe the Democratic Party help do the organization behind the scenes to transport these students from Florida, from right. Parkland up to Tallahassee and whatever. There's money behind these kids. Well, I mean, and there's people who can do actual organization. 
But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on record here as saying that the uh, educational system of Florida ought to be ashamed. I mean, if Mr. Hogg had at least even a modicum of civics um, education, he would understand that a great portion of what he has spewed from his mouth is just contrary to the reality of the way our form of government works. And I think that that's a, a staggering, staggering commentary on, on what Florida has done to educate this young person. So, uh, you know, how's that working for you, Florida? <laughs> so to chime in there on, on what you said, Reed, I, I definitely feel that the tone is shifting and that the, the public is more engaged in this particular incident. And though we've had several very high profile mass shootings, this one is a perfect storm of bad news because like in Newtown, they were infants for lack of a better word. And at VTech, they were essentially adults. And in this age of virtue signaling and I, and victim identity, you know, intersectional politics, they really don't make a prime candidate to say, woe is me, woe is me, because they look like right, adults. Right. And by and large, they can probably decipher at least some of fact from fiction, emotion from logic. But this case, they still have baby faces. They don't shave yet. And they're now being paraded on television. So on the one breath, you have some talking head saying these children were massacred, which they were. And then in the very next segment, you parade out these children by your own definition to ask them what we should do as adults about policy. Because in this particular age where intersectional victimality, victimhood is a sign of expertise, just because I've gotten the flu once doesn't mean that I am an expert in infectious disease control. It yes. just means that I know the flu. Or virology system. or... Or anything else, yeah. you know, and, and that's exactly the point. And so I think this is a perfect confluence of terrible circumstance, um, depending on what side of the fence you're on, to parade these children out and then just have them virtue signal all over the place. But, you know, I think it goes back to something that John also mentioned. But, you know, I think it's a little more sinister. Yes, these children have been weaponized, but I think what we're seeing is this kind of incremental tweaking of the playbook. Okay, well we had the playbook in place and this happened and well we didn't we didn't get it, you know, off the line. The ball didn't move down the field any. Let's tweak our playbook. Let's let's change it here. Okay, well it happened again. Let's move it here. And it's almost as if uh, just kind of the you know, confluence of this, you know, constant effort to make these changes, the playbook being refined and refined to the, you know, umpteenth degree and then y you have this you know, group of, of individuals that create the perfect vehicle for the message. I mean, I don't think you could plan it better by pure accident. They've been handed what they need, um, to take the playbook as far as they're going to take it. And, and I don't know that it's going to go that far, but you know, certainly they are capitalizing on what they think of uh, as, as a once in a lifetime shot. I don't know how it gets any better for them than this. I kind of look at it as almost like they're Mao's red guard in the cultural revolution. They're trying to upend society mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the purposes of somebody higher up in the party. Yes. Well, that being the case, I think that it does uh, give us an opportunity to segue into the idea of what those – changes look like you know what are they what are they doing what are their arguments that are being propounded to make us change our minds not 
us, us, but you know, Americans. So, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of things that are going on and we may not hit all of the ones that are really kind of putting a burr under your saddle, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Listener, but we're going to try to go over as many as we can. Um, so let's talk about common sense gun laws. Um, and a gunners always talk about them. Um, what, what do you guys, what do you guys think when someone says common sense gun laws? To me, it's like nails on a blackboard. <laughs> it, it's just like I start cringing because to me, it's, it's, it's a buzzword. It, you, anytime they say common sense, it's like bend over here. It comes because there's not necessarily anything common or sensical about it. Well, and I think, um, Mike puts out a pretty good point here. You know, there's a disingenuous beginning with that phrase. Okay, it's a common sense gun law. You don't agree with me? Well, you must not have common sense. If you don't have common sense, then what does that mean you are? I mean, there is this, I don't know, presumption that just does not exist. Um, so, you know, what I think is really funny is when you get on the, the different vehicles for people to comment Facebook and, you know, whatever comment section a news story is going to bring up. People talk about common sense gun laws. And then they say we should have background checks. You know, criminals shouldn't be able to buy guns legally. You know, we shouldn't be able to mail guns in, in the U.S. mail. And I'm struck by how staggering it is that all these people that want common sense gun laws don't realize that those are all part of our legal system. You can't do any of those things. They're asking for laws to be put in place that are unnecessary because those laws are already in place. What does, what does that really tell us about the people that hold those opinions? I think what it definitely illustrates from the onset of any type of rhetorical yelling match is that there are, there's a segment of society, some that just are not interested in actual facts because facts hurt their feelings or they don't fit their narrative. We can argue statistics. You can say this study is bogus because the underlying methodology is poor, et cetera, et cetera. But if you say it is a felony to go out of state and attempt to purchase a firearm and bring it back to your home state where it's illegal, I mean, that's actually probably more than one rule that you're bringing. It's a felony for, you know, for a felon to possess body armor. That kind of like these are facts and they're irrefutable. Uh, but when you bring these up, you start getting accused of being pedantic and semantic and all these other, you know, things, which really just tells you from the very beginning at the outset, I'm not interested in learning anything because I know what I feel and what I feel must be correct because they attach some sort of uh, they attach some sort of moral compass to it. Right. If I can feel strongly against something, then surely it must be evil. You know, I think when when we start talking about the idea of common sense gun laws, I mean, I think you automatically have the pro-Second Amendment um, constituents get their hackles raised, you know, f- about the idea that someone is going to encroach on a constitutional right. And then I think that the anti-gunners – are really kind of incensed with the idea that, you know, we're not going to just let them have what they want. Um, but, you know, the thing that really strikes me is that the reality is there is a structure in place 
to modify the Second Amendment, any amendment, to add or subtract or change. And there has not been, I believe, and I could be wrong, there has not been any concerted effort, to the best of my knowledge, uh, from the anti-gun crowd that says, all right, we are going to create this grassroots movement like the prohibitionists, like the suffragettes, to create a change. I mean, do you guys have any recollection of someone saying, let's no. go to all 50 states and create this thing? Absolutely not. In fact, Charles Cook in the National Review said, more or less said, here, come and do it. If you really want to get rid of the Second Amendment, here's what you need to do. And until then, shut up, basically. I think that the reason we don't see that is is one of two reasons. There are two. There's at least two tiers of opposition here. And so the students, and I'm not even going to bother to say their names, but the students who are out there marching and, you know, protesting and I'm going to walk out of class and tweeting, whatever, they're on a large, by and large, I'm making a generalization, but I think by and large, they're unaware. They're woefully unaware of the machinery of government and what the Constitution does and does not cover, which is evidenced by what you alluded to earlier, Reed, in that people say, oh, can we have common sense gun laws? Why can felons buy guns? Well, they can't. It's against the law. Uh, and then you have another tier of opposition, the the more sinister, more well-placed, entrenched um political side of it, where they, they're acutely aware of what it takes. But we're talking about a country so divided that a general election was div- it was was won and lost by a margin of a few thousand votes, where there's a split between the electoral winner and the pop, quote, popular winner. So to convene a convention, a Congress that would take three-fourths ratification, they know is a losing battle anyway, and they would expend the political will to try it a second time. Yeah. So they try to do by executive fiat what they can't do and, and, you know, social media trial. Well, and that's the, the other thing I think that is most frustrating to me. I mean, we, we stand as a nation of laws. I mean, that is one of the principles of our nation. We are a nation of laws, not of men. And the idea that someone is going to incrementally chip away at the laws. I mean, you know, I, I get things like jury nullification, but Really? I mean, that's not how we are supposed to operate as a nation. And yes, I mean, I think that there would be some legal scholars that would say, like, jury nullification is the way for the people to say, this is an unjust law. But what if it's not an unjust law? I'm sorry, murder is not an unjust law, you know, the, the, the laws that, uh, you know, condemn murder are not unjust. But for someone through jury nullification to be set free, who is a murderer? That's not, that's not what we should be about. You know, it's, it's not about, you know, well, I'm going to have my people, you know, redeem this person with an acquittal because I'm mad at you for some past transgression. You know, um, I'm, I'm going to be belligerent and, you know, have rallies and, and be against you because I don't like what you're saying. You know, I'm going to, you know, uh, oh God, the whole just, uh, what do you would call it? The environment on the university campus of today where, I mean, honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to 
contain myself when I was, you know, uh, in college had I had to deal with Nimrods like that at every turn. Although we're in Texas, so it's a little different. I don't think anybody here tolerates it. Okay, maybe. The irony is that UC Berkeley, the birthplace of the free speech movement, is now rioting in the street because they don't like what the opposition has to say. And I'm not even commenting on the rightness or wrongness of the, of the person, but last I checked, the exact type of speech protected by the First Amendment is the kind you don't like. The exact because speech that they once, yeah, the exact speech that they once protested for. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Justice, I guess. It's no. one of the reasons I've stopped giving money to my former college. I went to a Quaker college, believe it or not. Oh, wow. Uh, we were the fighting Quakers, kind of, in a way, <laughs> sort of. But I've looked at it as like, no, I'm not going to support this anymore. You know, I don't know what what happened to that generation. I mean, like I said, I mean, there are some men and women that I think as Americans we can be proud of. I mean, they have done the heavy lifting. They have borne the burdens of citizens and done very difficult things when they were called upon to do them voluntarily. I mean, they, they stepped up. And then you have this entire other, you know, parallel group of an absolute waste of resources. And it's staggering. Kids who are in college because mommy and daddy are paying for it, not because they want to be there. Mm-hmm. They're going to get, you know, liberal arts degrees and basket weaving and transgender <laughs> studies and all sorts of weird crap and, and expect that society is going to offer them a living wage so that they can do what? Weave baskets or wax poetic about genders? I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what happened to the idea that maybe you ought to get a degree that's a working degree? Accounting's a wonderful working degree, uh, but oh no, you couldn't be bothered with something real. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I will say my degree is actually in political science and economics, but, and I was 36 when I took my first accounting class, and I was really kind of scared that I did so well, so I was saying, what did that say about me? <laughs> but I always remember even liberal professors I had in college they would listen to the opposing viewpoints and you actually might have gotten a better grade if you in a debate took the viewpoint that was opposite to theirs because they expected more of the person who was arguing their side. Well, I mean, it was almost as if you were being rewarded for having an opinion. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that there was a period of time when um, a liberal Academia and a, a professor in that vein sat and saw, you know, wave after wave of cookie cutter conservatives who couldn't form an argument. I mean, I think that was like a thought of who conservatives were. But if you could come in and justify a position and stand convicted and, 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 you know, defend what you believe, then you're not cookie cutter. You're, you're not just doing it because you know, you, you grew up in a place or you had a parents of a party, you know, I think that there was respect for someone who could formulate that intellectual argument. Now, I mean, there's no respect for anything. I mean, you know, it's, it's almost as if the argument is, well, I stand here at the position of righteousness and you're not allowed to even opine about where I stand because you don't stand with me. So 
you're irrelevant. <laughs> and that's ridiculous. I mean, tell me, how many places where that has happened has it ended well for anybody? Can't think of any place. I mean, I can think of a few places where it started off with a whole lot of ideology and uh, we ended up with, uh, what, um, gulags and, you know, Boxcars cultural cleansings and what, what what was it, cultural revolutions? I mean, all sorts of things mm-hmm. like that. And and I'm sorry, you know. Well, I think oh, – sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, Reed. No, go ahead. I was I was just going to rant a little bit more. <laughs> No, well, I think, you know, to, to go full circle on that, when you said, what does common sense mean to you? So the founding fathers, they understood the reason why we, we don't, contrary to popular belief, live in a democracy. We live in a democratic constitutional republic. And it is because laws are not prescribed by common sense. In fact, the people who write laws are insulated from the will of the mob by having terms staggered. So that, yes, they are representative of the people and the body politic, but it is not mob rule. And so to even insinuate that this is common sense and ergo should be law is not only myopic in its in its view, but it's also very dangerous. And the, the document that is the frame of the government takes this into consideration. That's why initially the House of Representatives in the bicameral legislature is divided from the Senate, which is supposed to represent the abstract of the state. So they would have to come to a compromise and hammer out the details of these laws. So it wasn't left to folksy wisdom and, you know, colloquialisms to meet out the behavior structure for the entire society. And I think that that's one of the primary misconceptions about what common sense really is. And, you know, it's illustrative. I, as a side anecdote, I had a friend after Sandy, excuse me, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy say, why do these morons keep building cities below sea level? It's common sense. You don't do that. And I pointed out to him, I said, the reason why these cities are built below sea level is because they were built before we had combustion engines and they're all near the mouth of a river. So the only way to move goods was to sail them down a river. So maybe that's the reason. Just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that there was never a reason. Yep. So I think we'll probably end up circling back on some of the constitutional issues, but, you know, I think I want to touch on one thing that I keep hearing time and time again, and it's this idea that what we are talking about are weapons of war, um, that they are, what is it, full semi-automatic, or that they're automatic weapons. I mean, it's the whole ideal of the the naming of a thing that um, gets, a, a, you know, a group incensed at what we're talking about, but all of these names are fictions, you know, and, and here's, I think one of the primary illustrations. I want to talk about the idea of a weapon of war by that definition. Every firearm that I can think of is in some way, shape or form a weapon of war. I mean, let's just go back to, um, what Sam Walker, a Texas Ranger, who went to Sam Colt after his firearms company had gone bankrupt and put in an order for the Walker Colt. Colt. It was a, a Colt Patterson revolver with some modifications that the Texas Rangers wanted. And this was after the Texas independence. This is when those Rangers sat on the border of Texas were fighting Indians. As a weapon of war, they wanted a tool that could help them be more effective killers. And what are those weapons? 
the foundation of every single revolver in existence since. Now, I'm not going to try to wax poetic or military history and try to get into the history of anything overseas because, frankly, I'm out of my depth. I don't know what they were doing in Europe or Russia or, you know, Asia at the time. But as far as I'm concerned and the U.S. and its, you know, military history, that was a weapon of war, one of the first, and it was the progenitor of all of the revolvers that have been sold or most of the revolvers that have been sold in the U.S. Um, uh, John Moses Browning, most of his designs were created at the insistence of a government looking for someone to fulfill a need, a government requesting someone to make a proposal for a military contract. I mean, the 1911 fits that bill. The Browning High Power was uh, uh, fits the bill. Uh, Moses, uh, John Moses Browning designed a great many of the firearms that are still made by uh, uh, FNH today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, people talk about bolt action rifles, hunting rifles. Well, we, we, we don't want to take your hunting rifles. We want to, we want to just take, you know, the bad guns. Well, my recollection is, is that the Mauser was kind of the progenitor of the modern bolt action rifle and Mauser created that weapon to arm the German state with a weapon of war. And we licensed it and created the 1903 A3. Uh, I'm sorry, that bolt-action rifle that sits in your gun safe is a weapon of war. It was what we used in World War One. You know, the M1 Garand, which, you know, I don't know if it's the first, probably not the first semi-automatic rifle, but it was certainly an effective semi-automatic rifle. It was the genesis of the M14. It was the genesis of the Mini-14 and the Mini-30. Uh, I think there were a great many other semi-automatic rifles that were, uh, you know, came out at the same time. The Browning automatic rifle, you know, I think that's a, a direct link to the BAR, which was the, essentially the squad automatic weapon of World War II. Um, those are weapons of war. They started, they have their DNA in weapons of war. You know, swords are weapons of war. And by extension, anything shorter than a sword, up into and including that daily carry pocket knife people have, they started out as weapons of war. And, you know, yeah, when it was, you know, the 1200s, you had to be a pretty damn well-off guy to be able to create a sword of any value uh, on a battlefield and and a suit of armor. And if you were a peasant, I'm sure you couldn't get anywhere close to that quality of steel. But now it just comes off in, you know, great chunks from the steel mills of America. And you can buy that quality steel, probably higher quality steel, in any Walmart for a fraction of what it used to cost for, you know, the same quantity of steel. I mean, it's it's staggering the ignorance that people have when they bandy this word about weapon of war. You know, um they talk about like military grade, right? You know, I was a Marine. I remember the weapons I was issued. I haven't seen military grade anything in the civilian world. You know, most because I can't afford the really good stuff. Not many people can. I mean, you know, what is it, $25,000 or better for a good quality M16 receiver to allow you to have something that is a weapon of war? I mean, yeah, you could get an M60. Do you know what an M60 goes for? Somewhere north of $50,000. 
I mean, that right there is a staggering price. And some nimrod is going to tell me, we shouldn't let these people buy weapons of war. Jeez. Yeah. We shouldn't let them buy fifty and $60,000 weapons because everybody has that kind of cash laying about. Oh, and since 1986, we haven't been able to add any new ones, so there's a declining stock of them. It's, are you it's, suggesting that criminals aren't buying machine guns legally whenever they use them in crimes? Is that what you're <laughs> suggesting, Reed? Because I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can fathom that really. You know, that, that's another thing. Just the whole idea. Selling all the drugs is to get the money to buy the machine gun. Obviously. <laughs> <sighs> you know. The idea that, that they're also going to, I mean, what is the latest? I mean, the, the latest bit I've been hearing is that the, the 5.56 is a, a, um, a more effective killer. I'm sorry. I would put a 30 out six round in the hands of a Marine on Iwo Jima against, you know, anybody in the civilian world carrying, you know, an M6, or I mean, an AR-15, you know, shooting a 223. Do you, do you know what the sight, um, on an uh, M1 Grand uh, goes out to, you can dial it out to 1,200 yards. You know, that's well, about then, twice the effective range of an M16. And then there's the whole argument, pistol rounds versus two, two, three rounds. Diane Feinstein said, well, you know, if you get shot with a bullet, with a handgun round, it's just like being stabbed with a knife. But the hole that a two, two, three makes is like being shot like a Coke can. Which is ridiculous because it's not that way at all. I know. Because what they fail to recognize is the impact of the mass of the bullet. It's not the speed, idiot. It's the mass. So when you can take a 230 grain, 45 slug and propel it at a thousand uh, feet per second, uh, I think it's going to do a pretty danged effective job of putting a Coke can sized hole in your hide as opposed to a 223 that'll pass through you before it even recognizes it has hit something. Now, at distance, sure, that 45 slugs are going to drop off in effectiveness at 100 yards. The 223 is going to be effective at 200 yards, but let me compare the 223 to a .30-06 at 100 yards. I'm still more afraid of that .30-06 any day of the week, you know, but of course, shot placement has something to do with it. And, you know, you can't do that with a fully automatic weapon because nobody understands that aim to fire is really where it's at. Because if I'm going to hold the dang thing at my hip and just pull the trigger, most of the times I'm going to hit a wall, not a person. I mean, it's, it's staggering the level of sheer ignorance. And I think it's a willful ignorance because even if one is capable of completely comprehending all the things that you and I are saying, if they're an anti-gunner, I think that there is a willfulness to the idea that they just will not pick up the knowledge. They won't acquire it. They will not put it into the playbook because that is, I don't know, some sinful recognition of something that they don't want to recognize. I find that a, an honest questioning, and not in a snarky way or, or, or even condescending, is... What I do, I mean, it's the Socratic method. Okay, fine. It's a weapon of war. Why does that matter? Mm -hmm. Can you explain to me what the difference is? Because essentially, a firearm, an arm, like it is a weapon that is that utilizes a projectile. Okay, but a weapon is a weapon. 
that's lest we forget what the, the, the driving purpose of the tool is. It's a mm-hmm. weapon. So do I want a weapon that's more effective or less effective? So explain to me why it matters if the weapon is used in war or if the weapon is used elsewhere. The criminality aspect of it is already addressed by murder statutes, by don't carry guns on school statutes, by, hey, don't kill your mom and steal her safe full of gun statutes, by any any other litany of laws. So once we remove that from the equation, my question is, why does it matter? Even Let's even concede it's a weapon of war. So what? What is that? What is the point you're driving at? Well, I think the point is clear. It's the vilification of what it is. If we can turn it into the evil, then we can justify more easily the route we have to take to eliminate the evil. Even if that route takes us dangerously close to breaching a right, to violating the Constitution. I think that's why. I mean, you know, yeah. Do we need weapons of war? I don't need an M, uh, or no, not an M, a, uh, an F-16, you know, it'd be nice to have one. Not that I could fly the darn thing. I went a whole different direction with my education. But, yeah, I'd like to have an F-16. Do I need a Nimitz-class battle uh, uh, aircraft carrier? No. No, I don't. No. Those are weapons of war. You know, do I need an M-16? Well, I mean, I think therein is the problem. It's not about need. Do I have a right to own that weapon of war? Under the Constitution, I do. Yeah, I, I think mean, that's yeah. irrefutable. And and you know what? Just just as an aside, this came up the other day, and 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 I was thinking about it. Everybody is going on and on. Oh well, you know what? Back then it was all, you know, flintlocks, and you know it wasn't state of the art. They wouldn't understand what we had today. And somebody pointed out at the time they were praising the Kentucky long rifle because of its precision and the speed at which marksmen could reload them. Now. Um, I can't remember the, the commander, but I think he called his men rangers and I think they all carried Kentucky long rifles and they did not line up in formations and wait for people to volley fire at them. They stood behind cover. They took aim at, uh, the opposing side and they dropped British soldiers all day long. And that is what they wanted. They wanted faster. They wanted more lethal. They wanted their people. To have weapons to fight a tyrannical government. And at the time, they had multi-barreled flintlocks. They had early prototypes of things that one would look at today and say, that's a revolver. A very primitive one, but that's a revolver. That's something with a revolving chamber. So they can have multiple shots so that they can fire more than once as quickly as possible. And, and, it's it's almost as if there's this failure to recognize that we go from there to here, not because all of a sudden one day we just had M16s and AR15s and M4s falling from the sky. It's because we wanted better, faster, every time. And we delivered. Well, even back during the Revolution, there were some British... I remember the Battle of Kings Mountain, the British under... Patrick Colonel Ferguson, Patrick Ferguson, they had breech-loading flintlocks. Mm, that's a pretty it sophisticated a kind of, technology. It was very sophisticated. It had kind of like a, they could load it in the breech and it had kind of a screw mechanism to close the breech. And the gun was invented by then too. 
I tell you. I mean, it, it's a disingenuous point or position to bring up the idea that they are weapons of war, that they are military-grade weapons, or that they are assault weapons. They're fictions. They're all fictions. They're constructs created in a way to vilify the thing that they are attacking. Well, I think the labeling is the long game here, because if you take two parallel examples, right? So after every event where some, you know, an AR pattern rifle is used or whatnot, you'll hear the talking heads on CNN and, you know, MSNBC, whatever, the high powered assault rifle, military style assault rifle, uh, excuse me, high caliber, high power. Well, okay. So let's dissect that high power compared to what compared to a pistol? Sure. But compared to its peers, no, it's an intermediate cartridge. Caliber, as I'm sure you're all aware, denotes the width of the projectile at its widest point. So it's neither high caliber nor high power compared to any of its peers, really. So what they're doing is that it's basically gaslighting. Because if the, when that, those facts are pointed out to opposition in honest debate, you're accused of being, arguing semantics. So I, I, I question then, and again, this is not commenting or judgment on any of the uh, of the groups I'm talking about here. But if you take, for example, the LGBTQ community before it was homosexual or gay or whatever, and then they just keep adding letters to it. If the letters don't matter, then why is there a Q at the end? Because and, and I have no knowledge of this. I, I am ignorant of the subject, but apparently queer is different than gay, different than lesbian, different than transgender. So the words do matter, but only in the context in which that group deems it necessary to matter. Mm. But here, when we talk about things that are irrefutably facts, that the words don't matter. Now you're just talking about semantics. And so changing the public perception is really the goal here, I think. Yeah. Why would a good Anna Gunner let facts get in the way, right? Exactly. (laughs) Well, it's like I read something in, believe it or not, filled and stream the other day, because they were saying, look, guys, we're not the filled and stream, the store that stopped selling AR-15s and wants all this whole litany of gun control, somebody said, well, I don't know why anybody needs one of these assault weapons. I mean, they can, they may be semi-automatic, but everybody knows that they can be easily converted to fully automatic. (laughs) Which is a felony, by the way. But more than that, there's nothing easy about it. (laughs) You have to have your own milling machine. And you have to understand the dimensions that you have to mill the the receiver to. And then you have to have the parts to put into it, which, you know, you just can't go to a Walmart and say, hey, Cherry, would you pull one of those full auto sears from the back cabinet for me? I'm going to go home and convert my M- or my my AR-15 to an M16. Yeah, not, not so easy. No. You know, incidentally, the only time that I can recall, and I could be wrong, so I'm sure someone out there in um, – Internet land will go and find, find, you know, disprove me. But one of the most high profile, if not the only case that I can imagine, recall, excuse me, where machine guns were used is during North Hollywood shootout during the height of the assault weapons ban when two felons illegally converted two semi-automatic rifles to fully automatic rifles. And they also had body armor. So they just broke a whole bunch of laws mm-hmm. in California, no less. So like the list of ironies goes on and on, but since that, that, and they were also the only two casualties, the only two fatalities. So good score one for the good guys. Um, but so what does that tell you? I mean, it's, it, yes, it's a singular incident, but it, it definitely illustrates a point, I think. You know, if 
I, I honestly believe that, A, if you took the anti-gunners and they actually learned the facts of, of firearms, just as a rudimentary understanding of what we're talking about. You know, if I'm talking about apples and you're talking about apples, we can have a discussion about apples. But, you know, if they're talking about freaking unicorns and we're talking about apples, then what the hell is that? You know, that is not a discussion. We are not sitting down and having a discussion about anything because you're talking about stuff that doesn't exist. I'm sorry. That is just not right. Um, but, you know, I think that if they could come to the table and just talk apples and apples, I don't know. I mean, I think that we could at least come to an understanding of where we all sit. You know, I get it. You know, there is something that is uncomfortable about feeling unsafe. I mean, if you are walking through a mall and you cannot get rid of that anxiety that says at any given moment, somebody could do something to me, life is not pleasant. I get that. And I'm sure that there are millions of people in America that live there every moment that way. And you know what? I, I, I empathize with that, but that is not a reason to destroy a right. You know, it's not a reason to cause harm to others or expose others to harm by virtue of stripping of, of, of something that could save their lives. I mean, at least well, we if we were into other areas too. What's that? For example, what? I said it, 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 uh, it bleeds out into other areas. A lot of people make the mistake of thinking that pro gun right individuals only care about guns. That's, and I find that to be false, uh, as a generality, but definitely for myself. I like it or not, the right to keep and bear arms is a civil right. And that's not semantics. It's written in the document. You know, the document is called the Bill of Rights. So. Whether you exercise the right or whether you enjoy the right, whether you think it should be a right is irrelevant. It is that. And if you look at an example like the Dallas mayor pro tem who went out, you know, it basically was politically grandstanding and said the NRA needs to find another place to have their convention or whatnot. That's not a Second Amendment issue. That's a First Amendment issue, because now you're talking about a civil rights organization that has its permits in place, paid its money, is Said that they talk about legal products to people who are of age and able to purchase them or transfer them. And they're saying they're not welcome here. Well, now you're talking about content regulation. And if you look at, for example, last year, there was a, an adult entertainment convention in Dallas and a similar backlash happened. Again, that's not a two way argument. That's not a two way issue. That becomes a first amendment issue. Mm-hmm. It just disguised as that. But when we start to erode based on, quote, common sense or or feelings or distasteful things or unpleasant things, what rights are important and what rights are not, it begins a very, very quick process of, well, we don't need this and we could add that and, and monkeying around with the document. I mean, all of the rights should be held in equal esteem. I no more value the Second Amendment more than I do your right to a fair trial or not to be tortured or you know, the, not to have soldiers quartered in your house in peacetime. Mm. They're all important and they're all equally important. This one is just the most visible and it is the easiest to determine. Did you make it more hard or less hard for me to exercise that right? Which is, you know, we could talk about economics. Is the tax plan good? Is it not? I don't know. It's all black magic, but this is really easy to figure out. So it becomes a flashpoint. 
You know, I think something that occurred to me on that whole idea of, you know, the right, I've heard a whole bunch of people talk about how, oh, well, you know, times have changed. The Constitution is a movable document. You know, we don't need that right. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, you know, if that's your position, let's think about this. Um, do I need a right to a speedy trial, a fair trial? Not really. I'm not a criminal. I'm not going to commit crimes. It would cause me to need to have that right. I think we ought to get rid of it. I think most of America aren't criminals. We should get rid of the speedy trial and, you know, the fair trial bit. How about, you know, let's get rid of the cruel and unusual punishment stuff. I'm not going to be punished. Don't you think that's antiquated? I mean, sure, it was brought up when, you know, people had, you know, the rack and, you know, the Iron Maiden and all these other cruel things. So let's get rid of that stuff, you know. We don't need it anymore. We don't use Iron Maidens, do we? We don't put people on the rack. I mean, that's a completely, <laughs> so it's a completely ridiculous argument. Oh, well, times have changed. Well, I mean, I think we can construct that argument over everything. I mean, people do it about the First Amendment, too. Well, the Founding Fathers certainly didn't know about Facebook and cell phones. I'm pretty sure that all they meant were Gutenberg-style printing presses. So we have freedom of speech. If you're going to put it on a sheet of paper coming out of a printing press with, you know, you know, what is it, lead letters and, you know, mm -hmm. block setting and all that stuff. I mean, sure. I mean, we can do that all day long. We can do that all day long. But it doesn't mean anything. You know, they're ridiculous. And does the, and does the NRA really need the right to freedom of assembly? Yeah. Well, apparently some people think not. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it, so uh, Mike put in here, um, we regulate X, so why can't we regulate guns? And, you know, I just want to touch on this briefly because I think Mike – pointed out something, you know, quite relevant to the idea. You know, they talk about regulating cars. We regulate cars. We make you get a license. We make you get insurance, da, da, da. Well, sure, but cars are a privilege. They're not a right. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you are guaranteed a right to an automobile, at least a Ford or better. No, no. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that. Doesn't even have a right to a horse. <laughs> nope. Um... So uh, let, let's let's kind of um, cover this whole nuance about the rate increasing devices. Now I'm going to set a predicate here. Um, now for anybody that that is closer to having graduated from law school than I, I'm sure you're going to let me know. But I think it's the Chevron case that created the doctrine that basically gives great weight to an administrative agency a bureaucracy of the executive to create regulations, to put into practice the things the laws authorize that agency to do. So the IRS is given a set of laws that say go out and, you know, tax people. And the IRS creates regulations to do that based on the law. And the regulations in that context take the law and they clarify it. They give you examples. They point out methodologies and how one might do A or B or in this certain nuance, how you would do it under this other example. And the ATF does the same thing. But my whole thought is that the definition of a machine gun 
is pretty clear. And no rate increasing devices cross the line. There is no such rate increasing device that by definition of the law makes a semi-automatic rifle a machine gun. It just is not the case. And you cannot argue anything different because the definition stands on its own merits. It is independent of anybody's attempt to create a, you know, fictitious um, construct of nomenclature that actually bridges the gap. You just cannot do it. No rate-increasing device creates a machine gun out of a semi-automatic weapon. So what do you guys think about the whole attempt that I think is floating around to actually facilitate that? And under well, Trump's very own ATF, so. Well, when they had the, was it an advanced notice or proposed rulemaking, that was exactly the point I made. I said, basically, under the NFA and under ATF rulings, a bump fire stock is not a machine gun. If you want to have it classified under the National Firearms Act, change the law. Go to Congress and ask for the black letter law to be changed. Until such time as you do that, you have no leg to stand on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and here's the thing. I... I have a recollection in my mind that there is a case that came down, and I don't think it had anything to do with firearms, but I think the case came down in the last decade. And there was either a bit of chipping or the insinuation that chipping may begin at the Chevron doctrine. And I think the idea is is that there is a limit to what an, um, uh, an administrative agency can do given the law. And I think this might very well be that kind of moment where under a, you know, Supreme Court review, they can say, I'm sorry, ATF, but the law says this and you cannot invent something that is not expressly enumerated in the law. I mean, you cannot say a machine gun is A, but then say, okay, well, we're going to create a regulation that says a machine gun is A and B because we say so, even though B doesn't really fit. And I think that may be the first, I think that may be a very good argument uh, to chip away at the Chevron doctrine. Because I do believe there is a point at which an administrative agency has no more latitude that it has reached the limits of its ability to interpret law. Yeah, I think you're right there because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of people who talk, you know, you, you make a mistake one day, you wake up and you're not paying attention, haven't had coffee and you read the comments on the internet and your head explodes. And so you'll hear people say, oh, executive agencies, not anywhere in the constitution, whatever. No, the executive agencies are derived from article two powers of the executive that say, the president is the chief law enforcement officer. So when a duly promulgated law by Congress is signed into law, the president doesn't go door to door and start arresting people. Obviously, he has agents that act on his behalf. And so to flesh out the law, they can, they can interpret the law in, in its execution, but they cannot, of their own accord, expand the scope of that duly promulgated law to your point. And here again, I think that goes back to branding. The words matter because although I wholeheartedly agree both with both of you. The law is clear about what a machine gun is, and it goes to the operating system, the mechanism by which the rounds fire. But to the average rank-and-file American for whom the Second Amendment is not an issue, 
what they see is not beginning with the law and getting to the result. They start with the result. The net result is that you can fire rapidly, right? It sounds like a machine gun. You can spray a bunch of bullets, blah, blah, blah. And so in their mind, many bullets equal machine gun. And the actual workings and mechanical operations don't really matter because the net result is, quote, by and large the same. And I mean, if we're going to be completely intellectually honest, it's not a machine gun, but a bump fire stock absolutely enables you to fire faster than you could in, you know, with your traditional trigger press, et cetera. Unless you know, you're Jerry Mikulak. Unless you're Jerry Mikulak, obviously. That's why I wanted to know if I could just, you know, <laughs> handcuff him to my wrist and have him protect me at the ATM. But the point being is that that branding issue is is part of the problem. The, the culture war part of it is that with every single statement made by an inaccurate statement or outright lie made on television, made on Twitter, whatever the quote fake news era, it, it, it slowly erodes at the collective intellect of the people listening and you begin to believe it. You know, especially if this isn't something that you care uh, a lot about. You're just like, yeah, of course. Why would I want to attach this thing that allows you to shoot so fast? Of course, I don't want people to have that. If you're just some, you know, guy that or girl that doesn't really care about this stuff. And so that's what that's where I think the problem is. You know, going back to the Mandalay Bay shootings, murders, I always had the feeling that if he had used aimed fire, more people would have died. I think you're probably right. You know, you know, I think people, people think, oh, you know, fully automatic, that's some horrible evil thing. You know, you look at the, the, the kind of the, the horrible results of fully automatic weapons in the hands of gangsters, the kind of what people would think of as the impetus for the, you know, what is it, the 30, 32, 34? 34. 34. Um, the Valentine's Day Massacre, I mean, they were trying to terrorize people, you know? They had revolvers, they had shotguns, they had very effective ways for one-shot kills. But there's nothing like lining up a bunch of guys at the Valentine's Day Massacre and hosing them down with Thompson submachine guns. But these aren't guys that were sitting off a distance. <laughs> you know, they were what? Probably within that, you know, 21 foot, you know, range that we think of as most, uh, encounters having occurred. Um, and so, yeah, a fully automatic weapon is a pretty effective killer at that range. You know, you put that guy at, you know, change the projectile to something that's effective at two or three or four hundred yards and fully automatic doesn't do anything for you. You know, you get out there and you just start unleashing uh, a full auto weapon and it's suppressive fire. It's the fact that bullets are hitting all around you that makes you keep your head down. I mean, that's the purpose in a military context. You know, it's suppressive fire so that you can advance your people to flank or position themselves in a manner that will let them take an objective. Because you don't want them to advance under the withering fire of your enemy. You want your enemy to have his head, you know, down in his knees, holding his, you know, head out of the way so he doesn't you know get whacked i mean that that's that's kind of the the strategy that's the idea the idea isn't that you know we go in there and we're rambo and we're you know effectively aiming a fully automatic weapon and shot placement is great you know horseshit you know i'm you know i'm i'm not going to even go into any you know 
realm where I'm thinking that I'm qualified to say as much, but, you know, I'm going to opine that if you were to talk to people that were truly the tip of the spear, the guys that are dealing with, you know, room clearing and, you know, assaulting and, you know, we're talking our SEALs and our Delta guys, you know, they're not going to go in there with full automatic fire. I mean, the old MP5s, which is a great weapon, you know, it's short bursts. I mean, the weapon itself comes with the three-round burst. The idea was not to go in there and just hose down a room because you're likely to get one of your teammates or a hostage killed. The idea is to go in there and be very surgical. They're not teaching them to go out there and just be maniacs. So uh, full auto fire isn't even really something that's effective. I mean, John, Mike, have you ever fired anything full auto? I have. Now, you, you remember the first time you did that and all of a sudden the muzzle started climbing? Yeah. And all of a sudden you're not shooting where you thought you ought to be shooting? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just the natural result of that mode of fire. And I think people are kind of ignorant to think that that is something that is what we as Second Amendment supporters aspire to. I mean, I think there's a whole crowd that says, yeah, let's have fully automatic weapons because – you know, America, you know, why not? It's a right, you know, but truly, is that an effective tool? Yeah, it's only effective at emptying 401ks and <laughs> wallets and, you know, making ammo manufacturers, you know, giddy. Have you ever seen some of the pictures from the Vietnam War where you had soldiers and Marines just holding their M16A1 up over their head, over a log, and just holding the trigger uh-huh. and just hosing. You know, twenty rounds gone, and then they'd go and reload. Yep. I mean, they were trying the to fire. they were trying to get the other guys' heads down because they were in a crappy position. They'd exactly. just been ambushed. They want to break out. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I want to bring something up that that Mike and I talked uh, about at lunch, and and you know, John, I want you to chime in on this, but um. Um, Mike, what did you call it? The nuclear briefcase argument? Well, if you can have yeah. an AR-15, I should be able to have a nuclear bomb. Yeah, that's a common one. I, I hear that a lot. Um, I have a lot of relatives who, uh, it's like in the, my cousin Vinny one. It's like they live to argue. They don't even know what they're arguing about. They just like to make noise. <laughs> and so I had this couple uncles in particular. They're like, well, if you can have an AR-15, a machine gun for self-defense. And, and I let it pass just because I don't have the... I don't have the, the, the quarters in the, in the uh, purse to argue with that point with them. Then I can have a nuclear bomb or I can have a grenade or can I have a bazooka or other some such nonsense like that. So, you know, I have my take on that, but I'll definitely defer to our guest to, uh, to answer first. Well, I know under North Carolina law, they're called weapons of mass destruction, which we also call machine guns and silencers. But that's another story. Um Nuclear weapons, bombs, grenades, gas weapons, they are weapons of mass destruction, and that's why they're controlled. Um, if I'm going to have something more than a rifle, I want a Navy patrol boat and a letter of mark. <laughs> I want to go, go after the terrorist with my patrol boat, but no, they're not going to give a letter of mark. Um, you know, here's the it, thing that occurs to me, John. You know, it's the idea that we start from this idea of a right, right? You know, um, the right is inalienable. The right was given to us by our creators. You know, I was, I was, you know, 
uh, a child of God. I am on this earth as a child of God. He has given me the right to defend myself, to live. I, you know, I'm, I'm allowed to, you know, kill, you know, the creatures of the field and of the air and, and of the, the sea to feed myself and feed my family. I'm allowed to plan. I'm allowed to do all that. But I'm also allowed to defend myself from the person that would come and do me bodily harm. And the Constitution says I have the right, um, that the Constitution protects that right mm-hmm. by saying that I will be given the implements to do those things. And those things, those, those implements are the firearms that we have. And so I think those are very personal things. I mean, you know, the right to defend myself isn't the right to set off a nuclear bomb in a city to be indiscriminate and kill everybody that might want to do me harm, including the guy that actually does. No, I know. I mean, it's, 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 what do you call that? Um, reductio ad absurdum. I mean, one of the classic fallacies of logic. The point is, is that it is, in my mind, the personal versus the indiscriminate. A grenade is indiscriminate. Throw it into a crowd and guess what? You're going to kill the guy that's after you and others. Nuclear bombs, anything coming off of an airplane, JDAMs, you know, deadfall bombs, whatever. They're, you know, area effect weapons. They're indiscriminate and we call them weapons of mass destruction if they are of a sufficient magnitude. So I think it's just... I mean, why would you even bring up something like that without understanding what you're talking about? I think that is a ridiculous argument. It's intellectually dishonest because, right, so from a legal perspective, the semi-automatic weapon, did, even if you're Jerry Mikulik, it requires a volitional act every time you press the trigger. Yep. If you pull the pin out of a grenade and you pop the spoon off of it, the fuse lights, and at this point, you have no control over whether or not, or over the target that is harmed by this. Now you are the last control on where, the, where that bullet goes, but every concealed carry instructor will tell you, you know, YouTube is replete with these guys, you know, people, trainers and whatnot. There's a lawyer attached to every bullet. You're responsible for every bullet that leaves your gun, but you're not responsible. You I mean, you are responsible for every piece of shrapnel that comes out of a, uh, out of a grenade, but you can't control it. It yeah. goes where it goes within a certain area. So yeah, it's a mass effect weapon. So to come to conflate the two is equal. Okay, is not the same. And even if we were to take the primary purpose, which is of the Second Amendment, which is defensive tyranny, which does equate to military grade weapons, weapons of war, etc. Right. Without diverging too far into constitutional law, the right to free speech can be abridged through censorship, but only under very specific types of circumstances. The right to keep and bear arms under no right is unlimited. And under very, very specific circumstances, you know, uh, through, you know, through, through Supreme Court case law as established under Marbury versus Madison, it can, like, certain types of things like dynamite, for example, is, is something that's governable and, and the danger to the public at large, which is again is a mass effect weapon, is something that is taken under consideration. So I don't think that the two things are, are, are similar in any way. Right. All right. Well, I think the the next thing on our list is the whole idea of talking about the NRA and and where it joins in the arguments that we've been hearing. Um, you know, we we've got a couple of things that that I think Mike you did a real good job here. Um, 
I, I think the first thing I want to I want to point out is like the assertion that that the NRA has bought politicians, and I um I went to a website OpenSecrets.org, and it's called the Center for Responsive Politics. I'm not sure who runs it, but what they're reporting is basically information that is reported by the NRA in terms of its political spending. And so, first and foremost, um, the NRA made political contributions in 2016 of $1,085,100. Now, Marco Rubio was the benefactor of one uh, aspect of that contribution, of those contributions, and the total contributions made to Marco Rubio um, by the NRA was $9,900. So contrary to the opinions of a bunch of children that Marco Rubio is in the pocket of the NRA, I'm pretty clear that $9,900 couldn't buy that man, especially since that money goes to his campaign and not to him. So what kind of ridiculous tripe is that? He's not out buying rims with it. I mean, it goes to his campaign. So, I mean, I think that's important to note here. And the NRA is free to donate as much money as any other political action committee or similar organization because there's a thing called campaign finance law that regulates these things. Mm -hmm. The true power of the NRA or the Second Amendment Foundation or any other, quote, gun lobby is because, yes, you can spend money, but all the money in the world doesn't matter if your campaign fails. So let's just say there are 5 million members of the NRA, perhaps. Well, okay. So that means that on election day, they are galvanized into a cause that they will rally behind. They will show up. They will turn out to vote. That's so what you're, what they're actually essentially angry about is the democratic process at work. You're mad. You're pissed off that you've gotten people to vote. So I'm not entirely sure how that jives with their idea of we, you know, you know, we're going to take the power back, whatever, whatever ridiculous slogan they have. But this is <laughs> democracy at work, guys. That's what it is. Now, here's another uh, statistic. So um, when it comes to independent expenditures or outside spending, uh, which is basically, I believe, um, contributing to PACs, political action committees, which, you know, John, correct me if I'm off base here, but essentially what they're contributing is, to is an organization that is going to send a message out to voters. And so they're not making a particular candidate. Um, they're not greasing his skids. They're contributing to someone who might put out a commercial um, that says, don't vote for Hillary because she's an evil witch. Um, so those expenditures, they spent $52 million in 2016. Um, of that, they spent only 17 million for Republicans. And so that is 17 million. I mean, how much is a Super Bowl ad? Like a million bucks, 30 seconds. So, I mean, that's not a whole lot of television. That's not even a whole lot of anything when you really think about it. But 17 million is all they spent for Republicans. Now they spent 37 million against Democrats. That seems like a pretty reasonable expenditure for, you know, the results of, you know, my endowed lifetime membership. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I mean, that is, 
that's that's not a staggering amount of money that's going to, you know, benefit, you know, the Republican Party and the races that it's conducting. But here's something that I think is really interesting, right? So for lobbying expenditures for 2016, they only spent $3,188,000. Do you know how much Big Pharma spent in 2016? I think it has nine zeros after it. Yeah, it was three point something billion, almost four billion. Big pharma. And, and, and that is just a small sliver of the entire healthcare industry, which is according to this, another like, I think eight categories. So all told probably 20, maybe $25 billion just for healthcare. And, and the NRA spent three million lobbying. I mean, are you serious? Are you people brain damaged that you're going to jump on national television and say that these people are influencing the world in the material and evil way you say they are? I mean, I think it's more likely that, you know, big pharma is probably burying bodies and buying FDA regulators than the NRA is buying U.S. sitting senators. I mean, that's a completely ridiculous argument. It is absolutely asinine. It's also illegal. And further, I mean, like, is the NRA influential? Are politicians afraid of them? Of course they are. They're afraid of, they're afraid of people who vote Mm -hmm. in mass and you know, that, that, and that's the thing is that what, regardless of how anyone comes down on the issue of politics, right? It's the Republican party is often described as fat old white guys. Okay. Well, that's an identifiable group, I guess. Well, the other side, their platform is to be the opposite of whatever they are. That's not really a platform guys. That's a reactionary thing. And so mm-hmm. what that tells you is that the reason people vote in block is because they care about Something, whatever it is, and this particular issue tends to galvanize people that it matters to. So on election day, we show up and we do what we do, and and that's that is the true power of the NRA. Because contrary to popular belief, yeah, the the gun manufacturers, whatever they they contribute money and whatnot, but as as you just noted, pharma pharma's in the majors, you know, the teachers unions, the dock workers union, whatever, whatever the the, the huge lobby groups are that have, you know, play with the big boys. They have bees in the, in the contribution billions. It isn't the money. It's not the money. It's the vote. Yeah. So that's, that's the reason they're powerful. That is the reason politicians are afraid of them. Well, and you know, here's the thing, you know, big pharma goes in and spends $3 billion lobbying, which means that they send people in there to try to spread their message. Right. You know, it's not like big pharma consists of 5 million voting Americans. It's a bunch of companies. They don't vote. Their constituents that own stock in those companies probably don't even connect the two. You know, it's not like I'm going to go and say, hey, you know, I'm going to vote for so-and-so because, you know, my stock portfolio is filled with, you know, XYZ pharmaceutical company that's got a new drug coming out. No, I mean, that is too much logic and reasoning in someone's mind to even go there. No. But five million people that love firearms and hear that you're not one of the people that love firearms. Those people will vote. I'm going to tell you a story. I um, have a uh, uh, Noah colleague. Um, he deals a lot with uh, the aspect of real estate that involves um, uh, what do you call it? Homeowners associations. 
And uh, in discussing once a homeowners association conflict, he looked at me and he said, homeowners association cases are dogs. And they're dogs because you're sitting in front of an elected judge, because we elect our judges here in Texas, and he's sitting there looking at a courtroom full of homeowners. And he's thinking to himself, I won my seat last year by 49 votes, and there are (laughs) 75 people in my courtroom. And if I rule the wrong way, I will not have my seat next year because these 75 people are going to eliminate my margin. You know, I'm sorry. That's politics. If... A politician does not want to lose by that narrow margin. He is not going to piss off a constituency that is held together by such deliberate and conscientious thought. So I don't think you should blame the NRA for any of this stuff. You should blame the fact that the people who are members of the NRA care. Mm-hmm. I tell you what. So let's see. Um Here's one that I think is hysterical. Why do you need an AR-15? Do you need an AR to hunt a deer? <laughs> so, uh, Mike, you said need. You said this is bait. Why don't you expand upon that? Because it presupposes it's a that the right is predicated on its efficacy or its utility, which it is not. I could ask a similar question and say, do you need to get married do you need to have a civil union? Do you need to be able to get on Twitter and say, F you, Donald Trump, you're not my president? No, the thing is, is that a right is not predicated on its utility or its perceived need. A right is a right, and that's why it's a, that is why it's something separate and apart from a privilege that is granted by government. Um, and so when the question is phrased in that way, in the, the instinctive visceral reaction is to immediately answer the question and to justify the question. Why do you need an AR-15? Well, what if there's a tyrannical government and blah, blah, blah. No, that is the wrong answer. The wrong, the, the right answer is I don't need to explain anything to you. It's a, it's a, any more than you need to explain why you are married to who you're married to. What the onus of responsibility is on he who would take the right from me. And I will remove it. I'll talk about the First Amendment. Again, it's less polarizing. Censorship. I have the right to free speech. If on 5 June 1944, the New York Times wished to publish the D-Day invasion details, they would be censored by the Department of the Army. And I'm pretty sure that most people will probably agree that that is proper and correct. And what they would do is they would, it's called prior restraint, and they would have to adhere to something called strict scrutiny. We can go into all that later, some other time, whatever. But there is a process. There is a a standard by which they would have to behave. So answering the question sets you on step three when really we're on step one. I could get into it like, you know, if you want to proffer, okay, well, let's just assume for a minute you don't need to do that. Could you tell me why you want one? Could You know, that kind of thing. So I, I think it's totally a misdirection and it's a bait by talking heads on television to try and reframe the argument to something it isn't. Do you... I don't know. I think it's... It's hard... When you see the discussions that revolve around this, and I know that my fellow Second Amendment supporters get very, very rigid. They become very incensed at the idea of encroachment into something of this nature. And they are polarized. 
I mean, I think in many cases, justifiably so, because of many of the things that we've talked about, because really we get to this point for no real reason other than somebody's objection for whatever grounds, and usually I don't think they're really spelled out, their objection for some reason, some grounds, to my right and their right, our right, to carry these firearms, because they don't think I should have that right. They don't, I guess, recognize their own right. But is there a point where we go too far? I mean, here's the example. I mean, we talked about there is a way to change the Constitution, right? We, we've changed the Constitution. We've amended it. We've created amendments to the Constitution. And we prohibited alcohol, right? I'm sure there were a lot of people that didn't want to stop drinking, but it was prohibited. And I would say probably, by and large, there were many that did stop because, well, they couldn't go to the local wherever it was and buy some. And that was the end of it. But nobody, you know, went to war. I mean, sure, people went to prison and they didn't like it. But nobody created... A, an environment where a civil war was inevitable. Um, and, and I'm too far removed from my academic years to even go into the, the roots of the, the civil war and how those constitutional changes, um, as a function of what was going on at the time were impactful. I, I don't know, but I hear people say, well, you know, if they want to come for my guns, yeah, I, I'm, I'm gonna fight. It'll be a civil war. We'll go to war over it. You know? And, you know, you hear people on the left go on and on about how, you know, some of these things are treasonous and, you know, the penalty for treason is death. And I think that's funny because they don't have any of the guns. So how are they gonna actually execute on that? <laughs> but, I mean, here's, here's my idea. I mean, the strength of the republic is in the Constitution, right? And if, as a nation, we did the things that the Constitution requires to make the changes in law, would you give up your guns? I mean, if three-fourths – what are the rules again, Mike, for a constitutional amendment? Uh, you can have a convention or you can have a supermajority um, in both houses, I think. It's like three-fourths for the supermajority, and I think you can have – a convention ratified by two thirds of states, I believe. I mean, I if three quarters of the states, the states, if we got to the point where there was enough conviction in America for a constitutional change, then by default we don't have that right. I mean, would you agree with that statement? Yeah. No. no. I take it back. Uh, no, because the right pre precedes the constitution well it's a natural law right it is not a let's, government let, given let's right. go back we have the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we have the right to these things certain unalienable rights right what the second amendment guarantees is access to arms the right to bear arms so no one has taken away those other rights they've taken away the right to bear arms which isn't something that the creator gives us something that our government protects so that we have the ability to do something. But so, I mean, that's the question. If the great weight and preponderance of the people of the United States, by virtue of the very rigid structures in place, 
actually were able to carry through an amendment to the Constitution that negated the right to bear arms, does that result in a civil war? I think it depends on its implementation. But to go back to answer your first question, I agree that it is a natural right and that precedes the Constitution. And so my counter to that would be this. The, this, the nation is founded on the Constitution as well as the Declaration of Independence, which is the impetus that drives the Constitution. And in the opening stanza of that declaration, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, blah, 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 that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So in what Justice Scalia calls the penumbras of the Constitution, okay, so if you have the right to life, then concomitant with that is the right to defend your life. So they can they, to strip you of your ability to do so is the same as, you know, oh, yeah, you can, you can have any color you want as long as black. Right. Well, but but I'm I'm going to be devil's advocate here. Have they? I can still have baseball bats. Everybody else doesn't have guns. I mean, they're all illegal. I mean, we can get into the fine points of whether that's really true, but you know, it's unconstitutional. I mean, it, it, it's not a constitutional right. They can take away your guns. You're not entitled to them. Um, they didn't take away your baseball bats. You still have knives. You know. I, I still have you know bows and arrows. You know, no, I can protect myself. Arms. Huh? The Constitution says arms. It doesn't say guns. It says arms, which means the implements of self-defense, which means that your your mace, your morning star, your sword, your bows and arrows, your crossbow, these are all arms. And that's to have to, – to keep and bear arms means to have and carry. So – All right. Well, that's a good point. I think that, you know, once again, on the other side – I don't think that's really where anybody's attention is focused until we start slaughtering people in the streets with claymores and broadswords. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that there, there is, there's no easy way about it. I mean, it, it, is it, do you think it's the case that we are too far gone? I mean, I, I honestly, you know, the whole idea of a tyrannical government, right? I wouldn't believe today that it's even possible to pass a constitutional amendment taking away my Second Amendment rights. And so if it came to pass, I would really question whether it was legitimate. And at that well, point, I would have a hard time with the idea that I'm going to give up my firearms. But then there's the part of me that says, look, you know, is, is that something that I need to stand on? And, you know, it just depends, I guess. I mean, I'd like to think that I would have the conviction um, and the resolve to do the things that I felt were just and right uh, in those circumstances. And, you know, I think I've been able to equip myself well throughout life. So I don't know that I'd be any different, but I've got three little kids. I've got a wife. I've got a family. You know, someone comes to me under the color of law and says the constitution has changed. And, you know, we're going to, um, demand that you forfeit your firearms. Hmm. God, that's a tough one. You know, thankfully I don't have to sit here and thump my chest like a keyboard commando and tell you how, you know, many I'd kill. And I don't have to sit here and, you know, uh, hide in the shadows and say nothing. I can say, you know, ask me when they come to my door and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. But still, I mean, I, I, I read some of that and, and it pains me that, you know, good, decent people, free thinking people, people that uh, espouse the same ideas that I espouse are going to go right to Civil War. You know what I mean? Civil War is never civil. No. I mean, it's it's like Hobbes. Short, nasty, and brutish, but not always short. (laughs) I don't know. 
you know, to your point about whether whether or not you can envision such a thing occurring in this day and age or or its legitimacy, take an unrelated example. Who has who under the Constitution has the authority to declare war? Congress. How many times has that happened since World War Two? Zero. However, I'm pretty sure that you can think of some very large conflicts that have names and monuments built to them already that <laughs> to the dead and the maimed, I'm sure, would classify as a war. And somehow they were able to Congress was able to abdicate its duty. Uh, and I think that that's instructive here in terms of do I think that uh, that it's possible that they would ever be able to get there? Um, not not legally, but. Uh, you know, something that is un- a right undefended is a right lost, which is, again, why people are screaming and shouting all the time. And, you know, we're panned and made fun of in the media for my rights, my rights. But the thing is, is that with without that watchdog effect, people will abdicate their rights. Um, and and it, <laughs> history is replete with them. It, there's so many things that government is not supposed to touch that it does. And we just go, eh, it's OK. I don't care. You know, the toll way. Yeah, it's fine. They can charge me to drive on a road I've already paid for with my taxes. It's whatever. Yeah. Right. And so I think the slow, it isn't the avalanche because that's what a lot of the people on the internet who say civil war immediately, they think that it's some, uh, it's Paul Revere riding through the street in a pickup truck, mm-hmm. you know, with a CV saying, yeah, the feds are coming. The feds are, that's not what's going to happen. It's not an avalanche. It's, it's the, it's the creeping. It's, it's creeping gradualism. It's the idea of creeping right. gradualism. Gradually, little by little, they erode at the base of something. I mean, I think you can look at so many things that, you know, were once held dear and it's the same thing. Little by little, they've chipped at the foundation and it stands on such precarious, you know, footing that what little movement is going to take to topple it? You know, um, we hold the, the whole idea of our rights under the Second Amendment so dear, but, you know, the, you know, the 34 Act really created a whole structure that at the time was based on fear and anxiety, but really didn't materialize in any meaningful way to change the world. And it took away some of our rights. And then in 68, more rights were lost. And I'm sure intervening those two periods of time, other rights were lost. And we lost rights again in 86. And we've lost rights since then. And... You know, when is it going to hit the point where we look back and we're like, well, shit, we don't have a right. What happened? You know, and, you know, by that logic, I completely get that do not give an inch. Do not back down. Do not let them have a victory. Do not let them have anything. Even if we have to burn the house down while we are in it, no. I get that. I completely understand that. And to a large degree, it resonates with me because I do not want to give up anything because we'll never get it back. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if they have their way, I mean, I think the the unmasking is in progress right now. Um, HR, I believe it's 5087. Uh, they make no bones about it. Before, the strategy was... Uh, we'll ask for this. So we'll talk about magazine fans, one, quote, gun show loophole, whatever, whatever, miscellaneous distractions. But in this, in this iteration, it's semi-automatic anything, right? And so it isn't just the black rifles. It's not just the scary looking ones. It's, I mean, semi-automatic is pretty much everything except revolvers, pump action shotguns and, uh, breech loading bolt action rifles. 
because the way that the, the, the wording is written is very clear what the intent is. And, you know, when people show you who they are, you should believe them. <laughs> yeah. You know. All right. So, um, how many people have, um, how many of you guys have, have heard the argument about how, well, you know, as a tool of resistance against tyranny, it's pretty ineffective because the army has drones and tanks and, and planes. Um, oh yeah. What do you think about that argument? Not much. I mean, I've studied a lot of guerrilla wars. Actually, the last book I just got from Amazon was the Irish Republicans Army's Manual of Instruction. But, you know, my dad was in Vietnam for two tours of duty. The Viet Cong, the NVA, they didn't usually, they had no air, they had an air force in North Vietnam, but not in the South. They very rarely had tanks until the very end of the war. And they did pretty damn good. They killed 50-some thousand Americans. But also understand that the North Vietnamese regular army is not who was fighting in the South. When you had battalion or regimental-sized units, they were formal military. But when you're talking about most of the counterinsurgency um, or most of the insurgency, the guerrilla warfare, they were not, you know, traditionally structured Units of the North Vietnamese Army. No, you're right. Um, even better would be Afghanistan with the Mujahideen. Until we gave them Stinger missiles, it was old infields and cobbled together AK-47s and whatever they could steal from the Russians. And they got very good at ambushes and... Well, it became the Soviet – well, I shouldn't say yeah. Russians. I should say Soviets. Soviets. It became the Soviets' Vietnam. And, you know, with it. W- the, the Khyber Pass was the classic example in, in British colonialism of, you know, uh, a thing gone wrong. And, you know, it, it was at the same time, you know, the very exact same conflict. It's almost like that whole region has never had any conflict other than, you know, what the British faced or the Soviets faced or what we faced. You know, and, you know, you're talking about a people that, you know, I mean, they're still making firearms and workshops like the Martini Henry rifles. And they're making them with the same... Um, proof marks in, in imitation as were on the old firearms from the original days of the British colonial era because, you know, that's what they think they're supposed to look like. But the point is, is that these people are fighting an effective war using, you know, very crude implements, very crude technologies, and nobody's been able to blast them out of those caves all that time. And so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with my, you know, um, chances in an er, insurgency, um, you know, what, what's the best way to have an insurgency blend into the populace? Well, I think there's really two really important things to point out on this. The first is I go back to the, this is bait comment. Mm-hmm. Do you think your stupid AR 15 can stand up to the army? Doesn't matter. That's the first question that I ask is because my ability to win the fight does not predicate is not predicated on whether or not I have the right. So the thing is, is that whether I can win the fight or not is irrelevant. You cannot abdicate my right Mm -hmm. to resist for me. So this is an irrelevant question. Okay. 
I mean, you, you can dig up sports analogies, the miracle on ice, whatever. There, you know, Rudy, whatever. There are plenty of times where the lesser man overcomes the greater man or contestant, whatever the politically correct way of saying it is. History is rife with examples of lesser forces overcoming much bigger, better, more equipped armies. For example, the British colonies beat the British Empire with a little help from the French. But we did it. And they were better equipped. They had more men. They had more ships. They had more money. Their son never settled the English Empire, etc. So there's two things here is that there's that. Right. So I don't really care about what our chances are, because what people tend to forget is that we could talk about tactics and when the army turn against us or they would they support us, whatever. That's all that's all speculative. That's conjecture. But what I can tell you is that there are actual examples of. The Second Amendment at work. And I want to preface this commentary by saying that I am not weighing in on the rightness or the wrongness of the actors in these stories, except the Christopher Dorner one that I'm about to give because that guy was evil and hell with him. So there's two specific examples. Christopher Dorner was the cop killer in L.A. that gunned down those cops a couple of years ago, a few years back or whatnot. And they had that massive manhunt. The LAPD is larger than many of the armies in the world and better equipped. They had FLIR. Have night vision. They've got helicopters. They've got dogs. They've got SWAT. They've got actual automatic weapons, MRAPs, etc. And yeah, at the end of the day, they did kill him. But the chalkboard reads: good guys one, bad guys five. And that's one man with a rifle who is willing to go all in on his chips and say, "Yeah, I'm going to sell out on this play, and I'm willing to die for it." Right. One guy against the LAPD, and that's how that outcome looks. What do ten thousand men with rifles look like? Um, they may not win but they're going to make it a fight. The other example is the Bundy Ranch standoff. Again, I don't care anything about the guy. I don't know what the actual story is, nor is it any of my real business or interest. What I do know is that the federal agencies that came to confront him could have used force. However, his cause ignited a lot of believers in his cause to drive across the nation and to meet there armed and stand off with the federal agencies. And, there were no shots fired because the political expenditure of, of will and goodwill and public relations to overcome this standoff by force is too great to achieve the outcome. And so they said, we'll catch you later. And they did. And that's fine. Whatever. But the point is that armed conflict was averted only because both sides had a sharp stick, because if they didn't, they would just roll on you and you would end up in cuffs. And that would be that. So, again, no commentary on his righteousness or not, but that is the Second Amendment in its purest form actually working the way it's supposed to work. I think those are excellent points. But, you know, I mean, I think that also kind of, uh, I think that's a, it's kind of a buttress uh, to the argument that you know, we're not going to have a, a civil war. Because if it got to the point that there was that kind of, um, I guess, standoff about the rights that the Second Amendment crowd holds dear, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find Americans that would actually call for them to be executed, to call for them to be hunted down. I think the expenditure of political capital would crumble the the anti-gun, you know, movement. I, I, I just think that, I don't know, on, on some level, that's when the middle would rise up and say enough's enough. 
I hope you're right, because Twitter is a pretty vitriolic place. <laughs> well, and that's where the outliers sit, because I don't think that it's the the middle of the bell curve. I think it's, you know, the, the three standard deviations. <laughs> well, the other thing I would add into that is that there are going to be a lot of soldiers, Marines, airmen, sailors who would say, I'm not firing on my fellow Americans. In fact, I may fight with, fight on their side. Yeah. They would walk away, and if they walked away, they may, quite frankly, take a lot of their equipment with them. Yep. There's always that. So here's something that I've been seeing, I think, more recently. Uh, it's the idea that we compare ourselves to other nations. And, you know, I saw an interesting idea of, of you know, why comparing ourselves to, the, to Australia is ridiculous. But it started off with a couple of really good points that I think was interesting, uh, one of them is that it was colonized, um, and they never threw off the yoke of their colonizers. And the other was the fact that um, because there wasn't a revolution, they didn't really have a gun culture. Um, and the the second point they made about the Australia was that, well, they've never really had a gun problem, and the law has never really changed all that much in terms of crime. So um, – Nobody can really say that it is or isn't a very effective thing. All they can say is that there are fewer guns because they bought some back. Now, here's the other thing. Um, let's see. Japan was one that they were talking about in terms of the elimination of gun crime. Um, but when you look at Japan, we have a nation that is very homogenous. I mean, they are a, um, a people of, you know, uh, idea that, and, and culture and, um, you know, I don't even know how to explain all the, the points that can be, you know, espoused because of that homogenous population that goes back thousands of years. But, um, the other thing is, is that when you look at the statistics on, um, I think that the, it's, it's, uh, I'll forget the website. I'll, I'll see if I can't find it for the show notes, but they basically collect worldwide statistics. It's one of the places that aggregates information that's used by the federal government to talk about, you know, deaths over in other countries. But what they're highlighting, uh, on the website is the fact that if we're going to talk about intentional deaths, or a person causes another person to die, or I cause myself to die. Um, those are intentional deaths. And eliminating the tool from the discussion allows you to compare the fact that Japan has a higher rate of death per capita from intentional deaths than the U.S. Greenland has twice the number of intentional deaths, brought largely because of suicide. Japan is the same way. Um if it's murder, um, it's very small numbers, but suicide is huge. And I think that that might very well be related to a cultural imperative. I mean, seppuku, isn't that the name for ritual suicide? I mean, it's a, an accepted cultural practice. But the point is, is that, um, Japan doesn't have, um, a very big firearms base yet. More people are killed annually from intentional deaths than in the U.S. So even though two-thirds fully of American suicides um, 
I mean, American gun deaths are at the at the hands of firearms. We have fewer suicides than in Japan. So, I mean, I can carve out any single strand of an array of data that will support a proposition. And I can look as closely or as far away as I need to to get to where I want. So why are we as a nation so stupid as to think that everybody's statistics mean something? They don't mean anything. They're engineered to support an idea. And, you know, it's it's like the old idea of qualitative research. You know, if you really want to have an understanding of what it is you're what are the answers to your questions? You have to look at the question that's being asked to see if it's the right one. If you're asking the wrong question, you're going to operate on wrong data all the time. Yeah, I think comparing us to other countries is, is it's kind of silly because, first of all, right, if we're talking about, you know, questions of efficacy, does this country do this better than us, whatever? Sure, okay, well, you, you could ask that question, but it, there again, rights are not really predicated on efficacy. So Japan has few, very few gun deaths. Well, there are very few guns. There's a lot of reasons why that could possibly be, but Japan doesn't also have a constitution that looks anything like ours. So in a, a free society, well, society in general, okay, uh, depending on its level of order, must toe the line between anarchy and order, okay? And so freedom, liberty, the, is the freedom from being bothered. So inherently, the system becomes less stable. So how much stability do you require? And that's that's an individual, that's a philosophical question. But the thing is, is that we're not you social creatures. If we're termites, that would be fine because we all just do drone on and do whatever we do. But we all have individual wants and interests. And so this country is predicated on the idea that we do what we want. I do what I want. You do what you want. And so and, and from a philosophical standpoint, well, that's great that Japan does it that way, but we don't want to be Japan. Not last I last I checked, we are not Japan. I don't want to be Japan. I don't want to be anywhere except American, and you know all the good and bad things that that entails. So first, first and foremost is that's cool, but you're in my house, so I'm not really interested in how the how, how the British do it. In fact, I'm pretty sure we fought a war to make sure we don't have to do it like them. <laughs> and then, second of all, I mean to compare. Non-analogous societies, right? So guess what? Japan doesn't have the Fourth Amendment. You know, if, if we abridge the Fourth Amendment, I'm pretty sure that we can stop a whole lot of other crimes. For example, drug trade. We could find a lot of contraband. If we didn't have the Fourth Amendment, you could find, you know, child pornography stored on people's computers, whatever. But that's really not the point. The point is, is that due process, these rights are enumerated for a reason. And by default, the bad guys are going to win sometimes. But culturally, if they want to take some place like Japan, okay, well, throughout its history, there's been an emperor and there was a warrior class. Peasants weren't allowed to have swords. Keep that in mind, right? Only the samurai class and above can carry personal weapons. Okay, well, then World War II happens and their new constitution says we renounce all, all right to war. So it kind of runs contrary to the idea that, yeah, the tree of liberty must sometimes be watered with the blood of patriots and tyrants kind of thing. So don't really think it's a good example to compare them to us. And the abolition of guns, you know, it's axiomatic that in order to have gun violence, you have to have guns. But the absence of guns does not mean the absence of violence. And that's another major thing that people fail to realize is that, okay, that violence moves elsewhere. 
So maybe it's diffused and you don't have uh, outlier events like Las Vegas, which, of course, in and of itself is a horrific tragedy. But um, we also don't necessarily have roving gangs of soccer hooligans beating the snot out of people and stabbing them up with broken beer bottles on a regular basis. That's a good I point. reject it. I reject the term gun violence in general because it's gun is a tool. We don't speak of knife violence or baseball bat violence or if we go to the UK, we don't talk about cricket bat violence. It is just the tool that is used to commit an act of violence. Right. Agreed. I agree a hundred percent. You know, yeah, like I, I only use the term there to, to draw yeah. the distinction that sure. perhaps shootings, you have to have guns. Well, you know, I think that was a, an interesting uh, thing with um, the Australia band, and someone was pointing out that, well, gun suicides declined, but then someone else pulled out the statistics, you know, on a broader basis and said, yes, well, all right, so the implement of the death and the suicide uh, was lowered from guns to others because the overall rates of suicide did not change because the same number of people in the society had come to the point where their will to live was overpowered by their pain and they took their lives. They just didn't use guns. All right. Well, what's the old thing? You know, <sighs> commonality doesn't create causality. Cause, correlation yeah, correlation doesn't cause uh, causality. So, I mean, the fact that two things correlate doesn't mean that one causes the other. You know, I think that that, that same thing can be pointed out in a number of different instances. And, you know, <laughs> um, you know, if your average, you know, John Q. public and someone is throwing a statistic at you, um, they usually don't predicate it with, okay, this is the methodology of us reaching this point. This is the question we asked under these circumstances, these controls. Here's how we arrived at our population that we queried. Here's, you know, they don't tell you that. You and I can't look at that number in the abstract and say, this is a number that has meaning, you know? You can't do it. There's, there's, there's nothing in that number that tells you that. And, you know, I think that so many people are misled by the idea that because XYZ mouthpiece said the number, there is inherently some meaning to it. You know, it's like that picture floating around of some lady who's talking about a, um, the, 223 round going 3,000 feet per second versus the, you know, 9 millimeter round going, you know, 1,100 feet per second. And it's like, we're giving this person the ability to, um, validate some piece of information by virtue of the fact that they're paid to stand in a studio and tell us things. I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything. You know, what meathead put that together? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think I, I'm frustrated. I don't know. Well, that's one of the reasons why I always bring up the, the philosophical part of it too, is because we, it's easy to get sucked into the statistics to more guns equal less crime or whatever. And, and then, and then you're tricked. You're tricked into art. And because now the people who don't agree with your position, they're going to refute that, you know, by saying, well, that study was done by John Lott. He's a right. He's, he's a, he's already a gun guy. So that doesn't count, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas if I, I believe my contention is that if you, if we reframe the debate and whatever, we're not even going to get to the merits of your argument until you start telling me what you mean by assault weapon. 
All right. Like I'm willing to listen to what you have to say, but you have to state with specificity what exactly that means, because I don't know what that means. Is that is, is a direct gas impingement system the same thing as a piston driven system? Because the mechanisms are totally different. I mean, are you saying that an AK-47 variant is the same thing as an FAL is the same thing as an AR-15? Because if what you're saying is scary equals scary, then we don't have anything left to talk about. We can stop talking right now and force them to to examine their ignorance and acknowledge it publicly. I mean, and that to me, that's where the real crux of it is, because to your point, anybody can skew statistics by bending them out of context. I mean, if I've gotten a fight in grade school in, in third grade and that's the only one I've ever been in, but I won, I'd be like, I'm undefeated. I've won every fight I've ever been in. Yeah, I've been in one. That doesn't mean anything, right? You know, it's not quite Rocky Marciano, right? I mean, the two are not really comparable, but it's still a true statement, right? And so I think that being bogged down by the, by some of those, um, things where we get into a refuting match is, um, is where we lose sometimes because then they start appealing to emotion and we lose that battle every time because they just start parading dead kids and, uh, and, and, you know, and victims of terrible violence. Well, which if you're, if you're not a, a monster, then you're like, man, that sucks. You know, I get that, but here's, here's the thing that I think, you know, when we're talking writ small, here's the thing, you know, I'm a parent I have a child. My child comes in and, you know, he wants a thing. And I say, no, you know, you're too young or that thing is bad for you. Or, you know, there's a reason we can't have it because, you know, I can't afford the Ferrari you want and you're eight, you know. Um, and then there's the quivering lip and the teary eyes and, and, and the voice that goes an octave higher, but, and, you know, and, and, the 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 emotional thing is 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 triggered in a parent. You know, this is my child. They're in distress. I need to comfort my child. I get that, but I have to look at my child and say, "Are you out of your mind? You're not going to sit here and look at me and shed a tear and quiver your lip and whine about a thing that I just said no to and make me change my mind." Off to bed. You know. <laughs> I know that it's not the same in terms of the pain that we feel as individuals who face tragedy or as a nation that faces um, tragedy. But I do, I do think that it really comes down to the fact that we have to divorce ourselves from the emotion because it is the emotion that makes us do things poorly. You know, I do not believe that we have gotten to this point in our society as a people, as a species, because every decision was driven by emotion. I think it's because every decision was driven by reason and intellect. You know, how did we go from stone tip spears to bronze tip spears? Because someone figured out that that stuff in the rock could be melted out and turned into a much more effective weapon. How did we go from, you know, picking plants on our way to the winter hunting grounds to building a house and planting fields? Because someone figured out that I could cultivate grain. You know, we didn't do that because someone got emotional. You know, no. I don't think think that's any way possible. Now, yes, 
culturally, as a people, we've developed constructs and abilities to interact with people based on emotion. We, we foster the idea of love and personal relationships and, you know, child rearing and marriage, but those things have a deeper purpose that I think was probably driven by things outside of our own capacity to control. You know, we don't fall in love because someone says, yeah, well, you know, it's the right thing to do and, you know, it helps us as a, as a nation, you know, procreate and, you know, be responsible. No. I mean, sure. Emotion has its place, but not in the broader sense of things. I don't think that it does have a place. Can it inspire us? Can it, um, help us with course corrections? Can it give, um, human, um, experience to the hard choices we have to make sure but i don't think that it is the root well i mean that's the reason and and as a as a culture we're reversing if you look at 12 angry men the film right that's exactly what is advocated there it's 11 who are impassioned by the you know as a jury to feel a certain way and there is one person there who says what are the facts and i mean as you know, as lawyers, you can say, okay, well, law, law is meted out as reason without passion. Okay. Uh, as a, as the average citizen is inundated with messages that say, you know, your truth is what matters, not the truth, but your truth. Uh, and they're told that their emotions are worth more than facts, that they're, you know, that you're a unique and special individual and that anything that you feel must therefore point to the true moral north. Then, it becomes very increasingly difficult to try and have those argue, you know, those, those discussions for several reasons, but not the least of which is the fact that most of the time those discussions don't come face to face any longer. You know, in the 1700s, when you went to a public house, if you said something out of order or at least in an impolite way, you had to look at that person and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, if you do it improperly, you might get a fist in the mouth. But in the same psychology of road rage, if somebody's speeding 80 miles an hour the opposite direction, they can be as rude as they want because you're not going to see them again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the impersonality of the Internet, of social media, it's not just social media. that's this terrible vice. It stands to reason that when you are depersonalized and removed from the situation, it's it's like the Milgram experiment where uh, people would shock people to death as long as it, they seem to have orders from an authority figure mm-hmm. and the victim is behind a, a glass door or wooden door or whatever. So you couple that with the idea that people are being told to follow their heart, not their head. We're, we don't really govern that way. We're not supposed to anyway, but uh, the disnification and the nerfing the world movement is producing useful idiots. And that's <laughs> unfortunate. I, I don't know how useful they are. Right. <laughs> well, I thought I figured it would be redundant to call them stupid idiots. Right. <laughs> All right, so steal that nerfing the world. <laughs> so, is there anything else, kind of on a a bigger stage, that you guys think that comes to mind when we talk about just I don't know the the rhetoric that's going out there, and and what rebuttals you've come to realize are available to us, John? Can can you think of anything? <sighs> We can use facts, we can use logic, but too many of the people have already made up their mind and they don't care about facts or logic. They're just going to say, I want to do away with it. Um, I think the, the most important thing that we can do 
is call, write, email our congressmen, our local representatives, etc. Comment line for Donald Trump and just keep pounding that way at that to kind of remind the legislators, while there may be 5 million NRA members, there are 12, member, 12 million people that say they're members of the NRA. And just keep pounding this amount of, uh, don't let them forget that we're really out there. Right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, political activism isn't hashtag me too, you know, despite what people may think. And I'm not disparaging the me too movement. I'm really not commenting on it at all, but it's not hashtag bring our girls home. That doesn't matter. So if, if you want to make a difference, the calls do matter. The emails do matter. Um, just, just yesterday I called Dick Sporting Goods to tell them I'd never buy anything from them again. And, uh, and the, the customer service rep said, we've been inundated with calls like this all day from both sides. And so I sent a message. I did the work. I found the number and I said, I sent it to all my personal friends and I said, these dicks is saying they're hearing it from both ends. They have been all day. So be louder. Do your part. It takes five seconds. Put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> if you are one of the Molon Lave crowd, you know, come and take them. Okay. Well, this is the first step, right? That's, that's great. It would be better if we didn't have to do that. So, you know, what would be better than fighting about it is to tell them, don't do this. I think. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm reminded of that judge who sits in the courtroom with, you know, 75 homeowners staring them down in that case. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the politician, I do not believe changes his voice because, um, He's asked by a constituent to do so. I think he changes his voice when he feels that the weight of opinion about what he's about to do is going to cause him to not get reelected. And as we talked about, the base of the NRA is what gives the NRA its strength, the ability to wield those votes in a way that would undermine the ability of some politicians to be reelected is enough for them to say, I am going to at least give lip service to these people. And so I think it makes sense to go out there and talk to the people that represent you and talk to the people that are out in the world and say, this is what I believe. And I want you to understand that this is important to me and it will influence the way I think of you in the future. Because I think that is what changes people, you know, uh, is, is it going to change whether my elected representatives, uh, get into office if I go to the polls or not? I'm in such a heavily conservative area. It really wouldn't matter. But I guarantee you that if my legislator is thinking of, you know, in any way of, of moving off the mark of some firmly held second Amendment opinion, they're going to think twice if they hear from me and all of the other constituents because they're going to look at that and say, shit, I may not get through the next cycle. So I'd like to, to, to say that for any of any listeners out there that are listening to the show and, and, you know, aside from your own pure personal enjoyment, just to hear like minded individuals, if you espouse the same beliefs. But if you do want to tra- change people's minds, and I don't mean change people on Twitter and change people on Facebook and stuff like that. But if you want to convert people and wake them up and say, OK, resist the temptation to lash out and be snarky, because that's the reason why people get so pissed off and and, uh, and rude to each other. And, you know, so 
you know, I, I, I've checked IDs at doors and stuff before. People call me all kinds of names and I'm just like, you know, I'm just here to check your ID without, you know, without passion or prejudice. I don't really care if you get in or you don't. And so, you know, I guess um, a parting thought would be if you're going to change people person to person, and I have an enormous family, so I, like I can speak from experience of people who are not only just flat out ignorant, but just love to argue for no reason. Try to do it in a, in a manner that's respectful, even if they aren't. As hard as that is, because I know sometimes I just want to reach out and just say, I wish you all had but one neck. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't get you anything because all that does is force is just that just that's confirmation bias. You're all deplorables. You're all a bunch of hillbillies. You're all a bunch of, you know, God and guns and whatever the stereotype is. But if you actually start with, OK, fine, I'm willing to listen to you. What do you want? You want an assault weapons ban? OK, let's proffer that idea. Let's assume for a moment that I even agreed with you. I don't, but let's play along. What does that mean? Can you help me understand what you mean? Because if you're right, I need to be able to tell other people about what your point of view is. I need to go convert my friend. So explain it to me. What do you mean? Why do you think that? And that's a powerfully and, and, disarming approach. And I try. I mean, I try. I am legitimately trying to change people's minds and not just yell at them. I think the other thing is just to take people who are non-shooters shooting mm -hmm. so that they know it's you're not carrying a death ray in your hand. Right. That and especially if you have like a Ruger 1022 and you say, well, this is going to be essentially banned. <gasps> this? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't even think we've dented the surface of all of the things that are out there in the Second Amendment rights world right now. But I think we have had a very full show. Absolutely. So I guess with that, guys, any, any closing thoughts? Anything that we need to take away before we shut down for the night? Just thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Anytime, John. It is an absolute pleasure to have you join us, uh, have you be a part of the show. And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want it any other way. Well, yeah, I appreciate it. I like it. It was a good show. And I guess with that, we're going to go ahead and close out, but I'm going to have to get back to my uh, roots here and figure out where my show notes are. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, bear with me here. Now, I'm hoping that this dead silence is something that our editor can find. Well, I'll tell you what. While you're looking for that, I, I'll... I'll uh... I'll leave everyone with uh, something from Silviaria versus Lockyer. That act this is one of the few good things that actually came out of um, the Ninth Circuit. So it'll fill some airspace. All too many of the other great tragedies of history, Stalin's atrocities, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Holocaust, to name but a few, were perpetrated by armed troops against arm unarmed populations. Many could well have been avoided or mitigated had the perpetrators known their intended victims were equipped with a rifle and 20 bullets apiece as the Militia Act required here. If a few hundred Jewish fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto could hold off the Wehrmacht for almost a month with only a handful of weapons, six million Jews armed with rifles could not so easily have been herded into cattle cars. My excellent colleagues have forgotten these bitter lessons of history. The prospect of tyranny may not grab headlines the way that vivid stories of gun crime routinely do, but few saw the Third Reich coming until it was too late. The Second Amendment is a doomsday provision, one designed for those exceptionally rare circumstances where all other rights have failed, where the government refuses to stand for re-election and silences those who protest, where courts have lost the courage to oppose or cannot find those to enforce their decrees. However improbable these contingencies may seem today, 
basing them unprepared is a mistake a free people get to make only once. Truer words, I think, <laughs> never have been said. And unfortunately, that was in a dissent, wasn't it? It was. Alex Kaczynski? Yes, sir. Well, with that, I think we're going to close out the show. So send us any questions or comments to ar15.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we ask you to subscribe and listen to the podcast for free on iTunes or on Stitcher and leave us a review so the show can place higher in the searches for potential listeners. Uh, share your pics with us on Instagram at, at AR15podcast and tag your pictures with hashtag AR15podcast. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, check out our other great podcasts on the Firearms Radio Network. Don't forget uh, to use the Brownells affiliate link for all your AR-15 parts. And we have an Amazon affiliate link, so come on over to uh, the AR-15 website, AR-15 podcast website, which is ar-15podcast.com, and use that affiliate link to help us out like everybody else. All right. I guess with that, we're going to call it a day. This has been a production of the Firearms Radio Network. You can find more information at firearmsradio.tv.